one of the greatest honors of my life to be professor and chancellor at UCSF. And in fact, it was such, so much one of the greatest honors of my life that to this day, I am a professor at UCSF without salary. And that is meaningful to me. I cherish academia and scholarship. And if they thought I was worthy of being chancellor, that, that was a huge honor to me. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Her illustrious career has taken her from clinician to biotech exec to university chancellor to CEO of the world's largest foundation. Yet throughout this exceptional journey, Susan Desmond Hellman has remained empathetic, inquisitive, and emphatically true to herself. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is sponsored by Idea Pharma, the industry's leading path-to-market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharma.com. So, Lisa. Yes, David. So, you and I have both emerged from the grinder that is JPM, the annual healthcare conference that kicks off each year in SF with 15,000 of our closest friends. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also your first week in your new role. How is your JPM and uh, how are you feeling about your job? Well, it uh, made the JPM experience even more insane. But um, my new job's great. I've started at Manat Phelps, uh, leading their digital and technology practice. And running their venture fund. And I love the people I'm working with. And it's just an episode of uh, constant learning right now. All right. I'll take honeymoon period for 200 hours. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> but oh, that sounds great. Yeah. That's, uh, it sounds Exciting. better than showing up and saying, what the hell am I doing here? Well, I'm doing that too. All right. All right. Well, we are delighted to be joined today by someone who I imagine is no stranger to JPM, Dr. Susan Desmond Hellman. Now, the last time I saw Sue, it was in the White House. I've waited my entire life to drop a line like that. But actually, we were um, both attending the East Room kickoff of the Precision Medicine Initiative. And I remember distinctly feeling, wow, one of us was probably invited by mistake, and it clearly wasn't her. In any case, Sue has long been an inspiration to physician scientists everywhere as she rose through the ranks at Genentech to become president of product development for her last five years at the company. In 2009, she was named chancellor of UCSF, kind of a big deal. And in 2014, she became the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which she continues to lead. Plus, she's previously served on the boards of Affymetrix and Procter & Gamble and currently sits on the board at Facebook. And today, exemplifying the concept of bathos, (laughs) she is joining us on Tectonics. Welcome, Sue. I'm really happy to be with you guys. Uh, Hi, Lisa. Hi, David. Uh, Hi. hi. Thank you. Um, uh, for debasing yourself and joining us on this show. <laughs> so uh, given, given that we can't possibly do justice to all or even most aspects of your remarkable life and career, we thought we'd focus on just a few things. So for starters, we thought it might make sense to begin with your childhood. For some of our guests, their careers seem the almost inescapable consequence of the environment in which they grew up. My friend Stanford oncologist Allison Curian, who will be on the show soon, might be in this category. But my sense is that your journey was more emergent. You were born in Napa, I read, and was raised in Reno, Nevada, one of seven kids. Your dad was a pharmacist and your mom was a teacher. What was it like growing up and what did you think you were going to do? Oh, uh, I have described to people uh, a childhood that is straight out of a TV sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> mom, dad, the seven kids. Um, we, uh, we, I was a baby when we moved to Reno um, and 
we had just like an adventure a minute. We um, it, it's it, better called probably Reno Tahoe. So um, on the sciency side, um, I could not have imagined a better intro to loving science wow. than getting to talk to and know my dad, uh, who was not just a pharmacist. He loved the science of pharmacy. He loved math. He he just was such a wonderful role model, asked us all about our homework. My mom uh, was an English teacher, but uh, stopped doing that to raise her family and was a substitute teacher and volunteered in the library. And my mom loved books, and uh, and I loved my mom and dad, <laughs> my six <laughs> brothers and sisters. Uh, on, the, on the sporty side, I uh, got to grow up in Tahoe. I tell people I'm a proud product of the Reno Junior Ski Program. <laughs> wow. And, uh, uh, you know, my mom was really clever. She she put us on a bus and off we went to the <laughs> to the ski slopes, which I would do if I had seven kids too. Yeah, really? um, but, it, you know, I, I ha- was so lucky to have that childhood. And I went to, I wanted to be a doctor as long as I can remember. But I went to medical school uh, to be a sports medicine doctor. Oh. I had this dream that I, because I'm just super sporty, I, I gave up my dream job as a lifeguard at Sand Harbor, Lake Tahoe, to go to medical school. And and I really thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out I have terrible hand-eye coordination. I'm <laughs> not that strong. That's not, well, so why you're not on the Olympic ski team, maybe? <laughs> I'm like, I'm actually, I'm an enthusiastic athlete, but not a very good one, honestly. Um, But then my first rotation on the wards as a third year medical student was in Reno, Nevada at the VA hospital with uh, Dr. Stephen Hall, an oncologist, and it clicked for me. The science, the biology of cancer, but way more than that, the patients. I absolutely loved cancer. being an oncologist, having hard conversations with patients, being there for them, whether or not I could do something therapeutically, I could listen, I could talk to them in safe ways. Um, so it, it, oncology for me brought together everything I love about medicine, um, empathy, bedside mm-hmm. manner, science, research. Um, I was hooked. So before you went to medical school, you went and got a Master's in public health from Berkeley. Go right? Bears. Go Bears. And no, no, not oh, before no. I went to medical school. Oh. No, no, no. After, actually, med, after med school, you got the MPH, after, right? No, yeah. actually, way after med school. So I went to UCSF as an intern um, and uh, hit UCSF in 1982 when the AIDS epidemic hit UCSF. Oh, interesting. And so I w- my uh, path was strongly influenced by two things. One is the HIV epidemic, Um, so I specialized in HIV-associated cancers. But the second thing is I got the bug of epi and biostat. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be a cancer epidemiologist because I was so interested in in the AIDS epidemic, the epidemic of Kaposi's sarcoma and lymphoma. So I was an oncology fellow. In my second year when a lot of people went into the lab, I went back to Berkeley um, and got an MPH during my second year oncology fellowship. Um, That's so, so interesting. I think late, of those, those those areas of study as fairly um, disparate. No, I mean, like it, if you think about epidemiology and all that type of work, you think about it, the work of it being largely focused on yourself, you know, by yourself, kind of work, mm-hmm. very inward focused, and yet your career has been very externally focused in many ways. I mean, you've you know become a great leader. Um, do you miss that sort of quieter research study? 
Um, no, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, those, those little, uh, you know, uh, Myers-Briggs kinds of things, um, <laughs> On the introvert extrovert scale, um, there are times I've taken those, and and I'm not always a huge fan. I think they oversimplify, but I go on the outer uh, boundary of extrovert, mm-hmm. <laughs> unusually for people like me. Great. So, so one thing that was interesting to me is you went to U- Uganda with your husband for several years on what sounds like a medical research mission, and from there you went into private practice oncology, but then. And then kind of went and then did more research. You went to join Genentech. What, what prompted those different transitions and, and how, what were they like? Because they seem two very different transitions. Yeah, actually, the, so um, when I was at UCSF, my, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm in the AIDS clinic at the University Hospital caring for all the um, cancer patients with HIV infection who needed chemotherapy treatment. So I became the oncologist in the AIDS clinic uh, um, in the late 80s. My husband, uh, Nick, is an infectious disease specialist um, who was working in an immunology lab uh, um, uh, at, at uh, the VA hospital. Rockefeller, uh, approach, Rockefeller Foundation approached UCSF um, to study heterosexual transmission of HIV. So UCSF loaned Nick Hellman and me <laughs> to McCary University in Kampala, Uganda. Um, uh, before there was global health, before there was any of the support needed, and before there was a career path for people in global health. So we were, we lived and worked in uh, Uganda teaching, research, patient care um, for a, a little over two years. And when we returned to UCSF in 1991, uh, we didn't have a career path. Um, there was no huh. global health. There was oh, no job. So and when the chief of medicine said to me, you will need to cover your salary 100% through patient care. I said, I know what that looks like. It's called being a community doctor. Uh, so I, I, I failed as a, an up-and-coming faculty member um, and went into private practice in, in no small way to, to pay the mortgage. Yeah, no, I, I, I would love to position this as my dream, you know, every step along the path was well thought out. I needed a job. Um, and so did Nick. And so we were in private practice for a couple of years, me in oncology and he in infectious diseases, because um, we needed a job. And, and I loved, loved every minute of caring for patients with cancer. I, I thought that was extraordinary. It was the wrong role for me. Um, I'm incredibly research-oriented, incredibly um, management and leadership-oriented, and it was just the wrong job. So when Bristol-Myers Squibb had their second antiretroviral therapy, um, D4T, uh, in 1991, they hired Nick to work at, in their infectious disease um, uh, division of Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I was the trailing spouse. They only took me because Nick said he wouldn't come without me. Huh. True story. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, so I was trailing spouse then. I ended up being stuck on the Taxol team doing drug safety because they were overwhelmed, um, and it went really well. Taxol became uh, the best-selling drug in the world. I worked on the approval of Taxol for breast cancer, um, at Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, in the U.S. and then in Europe, really it clicked for me with my background in epi, biostat. Um, uh, and so in 1995, uh, um, 
Genentech recruited me to come out when they when they re-looked at doing oncology under Art Levinson as the head of R&D. And my husband was the trailing spouse. Uh, came to San Francisco and actually worked for a little while at Genentech and then went to Gilead. Hmm, I didn't realize that. So do you credit your success in part to that great partnership with your husband? I mean, is that a an important part of, of your moving forward? I cannot imagine uh, my life without Nick, um, my husband. We've been best friends. Uh, we were roomies when we were interns, true story. And uh, so we were roommates and and fellow interns at UCSF in 1982. We got married in 1987, and we have had a few role models. The first couple we met in Uganda, who um, each one of them has a particular time when they have something special, like a career thing um, that's very hard work or they're struggling. And Nick and I have been so fortunate to have each other's back uh, now for you know, it's it seems crazy to say that uh, that's been true since 1982. <laughs> We're very lucky. I love that. I love that's I love awesome. that. It reminds me of maybe also of the of um, the Nables. You know, Gary, um, mm-hmm. and uh, also actually my folks. So it's uh, it's really really nice. Um, so let me ask you when you about about the joining pharma. Um, uh, you know, when you're your your really incredible journey there. Um, once you did, made the transition and got your sea legs, and I think you started to talk about this, what did you like most about it? Oh, oh, what I liked most was what I promised my patients when I left private practice. I, I you know, I was so guilty, I was so upset, and there were lots of tears. I mean, you can imagine if you had cancer and your oncologist leaves, I promised my patients, when I left private practice, and this is absolutely true, I looked them in the eye and I said, in 1993, I promise you I will make, I will, I will work on things that will make a bigger, broader difference than I can one patient at a time. And if, uh, if, if I wasn't um, do, going to do that, I would still be your doctor. I wouldn't leave you. And I did it totally out of guilt and I wasn't confident it would be true. And every day I was in pharma, and actually every day since then, I felt that special feeling that I get to work with incredible colleagues to make a big difference. Um, and that I, when I went to Bristol-Myers Squibb and met the people who had worked on bleomycin and cisplatinum and carboplatinum, you know, these, these sort of luminaries of uh, cancer chemotherapy, I saw the people who invented the drugs I had been using on patients. And I just thought that was profoundly, profoundly important and meaningful and linked back to seeing my dad as a pharmacist. So there's been a lot of backlash against pharma lately. You may have heard something about this. (laughs) Yeah, especially (laughs) profound backlash and coming from the government, et cetera. Um, And yet... Pharma clearly has an incredible value as a, as a vital driver of health and, and, and research. What do you wish people better understood about the industry? I wish people uh, better understood two things. The first thing, and I've said this many times, I've had this uh, weird career. Um, actually, my former dean of my medical school at University of Nevada called my career chaotic. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I would prefer to say it's, it's diverse. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been in industry, global health, uh, pi- private sector, public sector, academia. I've known people of great integrity 
who I just like just am so honored to work with people with great values, people who are just just the people who I admire and respect who care deeply about patients um, in each of those sectors. And I've known people who lack integrity um, mm. in, in all the sectors I've worked in. So um, the, the, the dialogue around the for-profit industry in health, I think, is, is wrong-headed. So I think we all need to take a deep breath and ask ourselves what we all really care about. And I have known people in all sectors who care deeply that fellow human beings have the opportunity to have a healthy, productive life. And um, I, I am so thrilled that I get to have that as the mission I work on now at, at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But But I wish people knew that industry colleagues feel the same way. Um, the second thing I wish people knew is that when you are accountable to shareholders, that's not nice to have. That's your job. And so the, the, the really hard thing and the secret sauce of Art Levinson at Genentech during our best days was that we spent every day trying to do both those things. And we believed that if we did the right thing for patients, that would be good business over the long term. I think you know, some of what we're seeing now is short timerism, short term, you know, so I'm going to be accountable to my shareholders, even if it's bad for patients, even if nobody can afford my drugs. And balancing that accountability to shareholders and that accountability to patients and their families and society, that's the dialogue I wish we were having. So uh, um, one of the things this reminds me of is when you left Genentech after an extraordinarily successful career to join UCSF, um, how did that academic environment respond to having someone from the private sector sort of join and lead them? Um, I, I heard through the grapevine that not everyone at a university has a positive view of the private sector. Um, <laughs> <laughs> rumor has it. Um, no, no, but I think that there's a certain amount of, um, you know, there's, there's always a certain amount of tension or friction. And I, I, I'm wondering how you experienced it in, as a leader um, of an organization coming from such a prominent role in the private for-profit sector, right? Yeah, it's actually, it was interesting because it was 2009, and um, I, I, I would tell you two things. First of all, Genentech um, was a very academic environment when I was there. For um, sure. And so I was an adjunct professor at UCSF. I taught, I actually taught at Stanford, I, I lectured at Stanford UCSF and UC Berkeley. Um, in your spare time. In my spare time. I mean, lectured, I didn't do a whole course. I would just go give a lecture, which I enjoyed immensely. So it wasn't like I was a stranger. I was adjunct faculty in Epi and Biostat at UCSF. And so, and they knew me. I trained there. I was on the faculty there. So I think that helped in terms of being such a, uh, you know, a private sector person. But I, I told people in 2009 that, there was a lot of chit-chat about um, me being the ninth and first female chancellor, but I was the ninth and first huh. chancellor from the private sector, um, which was probably a bigger deal than being female. Um, so I, I, I think there were people who were ready to um, intensely dislike me and think I was the devil. And I, 
I I didn't spend a lot of time on that. You know, in 2009 in California, I spent most of my time trying to figure out how we were going to um, uh, be a going concern from a financial standpoint. Um, but I, I will tell you, the first day I showed up, I gave a, a talk. And one of the things I told people at UCSF, because I was on Parnassus, um, we were we were midway through building what is this tremendously amazing Mission Bay that I inherited from Mike Bishop, uh, the chancellor before me, and other colleagues. It's just this remarkable thing. But as I sat, stood at the podium on Parnassus, I told people who looked at me like, who is this lady? <laughs> you know, I, I, who is this drug company lady? <laughs> and I, I still remember I told them something I wanted them to know about me, uh, which was that my uh, um, dad was born uh, and raised in the Sunset District and that my dad went to St. Anne's uh, Grammar School down the street from UCSF and that my grandma was an upstairs maid in the Richmond District near the VA hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted people to know that I was just like them. Um, I wasn't some Genentech fancy drug company lady. I was a California native. I was born to uh, um, to a San Francisco native, and that you know I I rooted for the San Francisco Giants uh, <laughs> and the Forty ers and the Warriors just like they did, you know. And so I tried to connect because I, I did feel like there was a lot of suspicion about my motives and about what it would be like to have me leave. So what was it like to go back to UCSF as chancellor now when you? felt like you couldn't work there early on, couldn't get a job or st sustainable job there and, and had to leave. Was it a, a um, how did that impact your thinking? Yeah, I, I, I would tell you that in a funny way, um, I, I have told this story about the best advice I didn't follow. Uh, the best advice I didn't follow was from an amazing oncologist, uh, um, Bob Cohen, who was a colleague at UCSF and then Genentech. He told me when I went to Uganda that I would ruin my academic career. Um, I didn't follow his advice, and so I went back to Bob and I said, "Look what happened! I'm a professor." <laughs> so I, I actually thought I just thought it was um, the one of the greatest honors of my life to be professor and chancellor at UCSF. And in fact, it was such so much one of the greatest honors of my life that to this day. I am a professor at UCSF without salary, and um, I, that is meaningful to me. I, I cherish academia and scholarship, and if they thought I was worthy of being chancellor, that, that was a huge honor to me. Well, that, I, I, knowing you, that's entirely believable, and it's, it's so nice to hear. Um, one of the things you did at UCSF, among so many things, um, was, so what we, by the way, we will get to the, the, the Gates, your work at the Gates Foundation, obviously. But, please, but, please. But, but, but <laughs> oh, yeah, you do too many interesting things, and this is an important and contemporary topic. Um, you led several national initiatives that put precision medicine and the concept of a knowledge network on the map. Where do you think we are on this journey today, and how has your perspective on precision medicine changed, if at all, over the last eight years? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question, David. So, so my boss, uh, one of my two bosses, or three bosses, uh, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, and Warren Buffett, so one of them, Bill Gates, has said we overestimate what we can do in one year, and we underestimate what we can do in a decade. 
And I would say that applies absolutely to precision medicine. Um, it is it, my belief, my very, very, very strong belief is that precision medicine is the right way to uh, approach product development. Um, I actually, I know you guys like Twitter like me. Um, <laughs> on Twitter this morning, I reminded people of a nature paper I co-authored. Uh, it's, it's a comment, a commentary in Nature, December 2016, with two EpiBiostat colleagues from Gates Foundation, Scott Dowell and David Blazes, Four Steps to Precision Public Health. So not only do I believe in precision medicine as strongly as I did when I was at UCSF, but I even more strongly believe as, as CEO of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in precision public health. If we want, and we all do, access and affordability and equity in healthcare, we need to be more efficient. And I believed back in the day in precision uh, medicine because I wanted right drug, right patient, right time, and thought eventually that would be the most efficient way to treat patients. I, I, as we sit here today, that hasn't changed for me at all. Um, there's lots of hard things in getting there. There's incentives. There's um, uh, predictability of R&D. There's all sorts of things that you guys think about. Has it been harder than you thought? Way harder. Way, way, way harder. And I also think the... The, the the strange forces that have led and and I'll I'll mention one area that just it 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 is something that we need to sort out. So orphan indications, um, and orphan um, policy, orphan drug policy, have have been sort of the poster child for me of skewing the dream of precision medicine. So if if you say that the, the the smallest possible population for precise treatment drives the largest prices, um, my dream that you wouldn't have to pay for the pay, I, I describe this with Herceptin all the time. So so people would say, okay, Herceptin is just an expensive drug. Why why you a public health access persons who would would be so positive about Herceptin. When we first launched Herceptin, I said 75% of women with breast cancer um, won't benefit from Herceptin. Their payer won't pay for that. She won't be uh, um, subject to the side effects of that. Like for me, that was my dream is that patients wouldn't have a medicine that's you know that, that that they would have to pay for and that they would have side effects that couldn't help them that dream hasn't changed and then the question is what's the right pricing structure um, to make that dream affordable and accessible for people and you saw the recent commentary from uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine catalyst by um, Amitab and, and several other folks trying to take on some sort of modest restructuring of the uh, maybe not so modest, of, a, of the orphan drug approach. So may I ask, um, this digital revolution that's occurring uh, in medicine, how do you see that fitting into the, the, the digital health world, fitting in with the precision medicine world in, in the work you do, or do you? I think it fits in beautifully. I think it fits in beautifully. It, it is, um, think about a world where, think about Zika. Zika is such a good example Think about a world where everything from 
the 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 story that we heard that that um, caregivers in Brazil were were um, communicating with each other through WhatsApp and saying, "I've got a baby with a small head. It's kind of weird." Mm-hmm. Um, to figuring out in Miami Dade County exactly where they should target Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. I mean, that is that's the digital revolution and precision public health that drives access and drives low-cost available technology to, to save lives. I mean, I think it's the throughput is right in front of our eyes. We just all need to figure out how the pieces work together. Mm-hmm. Do you think big pharma companies will be selling digital therapeutics over the next, say, 10 years, or will that just be an adjunct fun- you know, function of, of the, um, the actual drugs? No, um, one of the the um, so I'm I'm going on Monday to Davos, uh-huh. and um, it's funny because they <laughs> always tell people roll their eyes when I tell them things like I'm going to Davos or I'm on Twitter, and I say no, no, it's Sue Twitter. <laughs> Sue Twitter is actually very kind. You'll notice Sue Twitter. Sue Twitter has no bullying. <laughs> I, I don't believe in it. I'm like uh, like I'm just that. Uh, um, I'm odd that way. So Sue Twitter is at a boy, at a gal, like good for you. Um, Sue, yes, very a tool. Sue Davos yeah. <laughs> is. I'm meeting with a bunch of people I respect and admire in pharma, in biotech, in digital health, in global health, um, uh, in uh, um, the the banking sector because I want to look at the mobile money and how you pay for health or how you pay healthcare workers. So Sue Davos is all about the question you asked me, Lisa. So one of the things I'm most excited about uh, at going to Davos is um, we're at the Gates Foundation. Our big thing at Davos is the replenishment of the global health funds. So the the global fund for mm-hmm. AIDS, TB, malaria, and Gavi, the vaccine alliance. It, guess who makes the innovations that are the heart and soul of both the global fund and Gavi? Pharma companies. Um, so it, the the yep. really cool thing for me is Preach. I need and I want those innovations. I want you know when the private sector is at its best, it can do things no one else can. Um, and so the really cool thing for me in going to Davos is a story of unleashing economic growth and improving health while pharma companies advance their bottom line. Now, that's something I think no matter if you're public healthy, global healthy, or if you're financially oriented and go to J.P. Morgan, everybody can get behind that message. Um, and that's why I love the job I get to do now because I'm, I'm not anti-capitalism. <laughs> like I'm pro-capitalism. One of us agrees with you on that. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, so two more questions, I think. One, um, probably should do the broader one last, but I'm going to do it first, is just more, what are you most excited about of all the things that you're doing now? Um, what, it, what excites you the most about your current work and, and what, what you get to, to think about and, and execute against? Um, oh, gosh, so much stuff. <laughs> Um, that's a, Pick your favorite. That's a really, really hard question. I, I guess maybe the the 
I'll, I'll surprise you with, or maybe I'll surprise you with my answer. Um, it, it, it's it, what I'm most excited about is vaccines. Um, I, I think that. Wait, are you pro vaccine? No, I'm. <laughs> So, so let me give you an example. My career and my life path has so been shaped by HIV/AIDS. It, it's astounding that that we get so horrified by Ebola or Zika um, in the face of the HIV epidemic that continues to devastate people globally, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa. We the battle against HIV cannot be won without a game-changing vaccine, and you know, as a as a, a person who spent so much time on cancer on therapies, um, I, I believe so strongly in prevention. And if you love the return on investment in prevention, I, I just love vaccines. And so today, I I am most excited about new biology, new ways of thinking about vaccines, new ways of thinking about getting vaccines to the poorest in the world to save millions of children's lives. So I would say the thing I'm most excited about is vaccines and innovation in in invention and delivery of vaccines. Wow. Well, that's that, that's very exciting. And I certainly feel like now I'm hearing in stereo about the the promise around um, uh, sort of uh, HIV and, and emerging viruses. As you know, my wife leads some of that work at, uh, at Gilead um, and is, um, uh, you know, very excited about the, the, the promise of the field. Um, the last question that I, that I have for you um, is, so you trained in biostats and epidemiology and worked in pharma. And now the big talk is data science and bringing data science sort of, you know, you know into, into industry, into different areas. But the way industry interacts with biostats, is it, as Atul Butte said, as Zach Haney said, I mean, it's more of almost like a service provider. What, but, you know, as associated with Microsoft, with all you've done, you, you kind of have a broader view of now of what data, you know, what people are at least aspiring to do with data science. What needs to happen I'm asking you this as a, someone who's a bio, has a biostats background. You know, like you're saying, you teach this at UCSF to sort of go from the way biostats is, is was traditionally viewed to unleashing and whatever you want to call it more of the potential that some many of us see in data science. So I'm so glad you asked that question, David. The the I, and I've I've discussed this. Um, at length in my new job in terms of how we think about talent, I, I think that the, the, the secret sauce of great talent in global health, pharma, biotech, digital health, um, health services, the, the secret sauce is being numeric, being analytical. I think that the, the, the people who I see as driving the agenda in all the right ways, have understand inference, are, are analytical. So I'll name a few people who I think are have a magic touch on this. Who I know you guys either follow on Twitter or or you know who really get it. So my successor at Genentech, Hal Barron, who's the head of R and D at GSK now, Hal's analytical. He thinks about inference. He thinks about the natural history of disease and our ability to impact it. 
Trevor Mundell, the president of Global Health at the Gates Foundation, is incredibly mathy. Like he's got a, a math model of disease in his head, and when we talk, he uses that math model. Um, Rob Califf, who the former uh, FDA commissioner, is is one of the great thinkers in cardiovascular disease, and and um, brought that kind of thinking to his job at FDA and now his job at at Duke and everything he's doing. It, yeah, with the Duke Forge it, effort, it, right? It, yeah, it's just it's it's that way. And if and Nick, my husband, and I are we think that way. We're very different, and and yet one of the most fun. Um, dinner table conversations will have is when he comes, he's been for a decade working at Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. So he lives to interrupt maternal to child transmission of HIV. He has done that for a decade, focused on that problem. And I, so I say, I go broad and superficial. He goes narrow and deep. But what we have in common is that mathy inference of taking the natural history of disease, epidemiology, and looking at the impact of a new intervention and then how to deliver it. that That's the secret sauce. But as someone who's been in both pharma and medicine, you also appreciate a lot of the intuition that comes from practice, from, from experts, the authentic intuition. How do you sort of balance the, the sort of analytical focus with some of the, the real wisdom that isn't always captured by numbers? Oh, that, that's a simple answer, teams. Um, I love product development. I loved the time I spent at Genentech. I love being at the Gates Foundation because what those two things have in common, uh, they're team sports. Uh, they're team sports. So the, the most fun ever is to sit in a room with uh, Trevor Mundell, Chris Elias, Mark Sussman, our three global presidents, and talk about how we can take the findings of saving children's lives uh, with azithromycin and get those to as many babies in the world as possible. I got to do that this week. Like, that's called teamwork. That's awesome. Like, that's the most fun ever. That is wonderful. Well, so thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been wonderful talking to you. Incredibly inspirational. We're, we're grateful for having you and for the work that you're doing and um, continue to do. Thanks for everything. Thanks for having me. This was fun. <laughs> All righty. What an incredible person. I, she's just so, really is so inspirational and in what she gets to do. Can you imagine having a career where all you do is like the big freaking deal things? I mean, it's just kind of incredible to think about the impact she's actually been able to have. True. And I, and I thought I just love how she was so candid about her the way th her career really emerged. You know, mm. you always have this, oh, I'm going to... There's some folks, right. it seems, who are so planful and deliberate. And mm -hmm. it seems that to a certain degree followed sort of her passion. Mm -hmm. To a certain degree, it seems like she followed necessity, you know? Mm -hmm. Her initial job, she did what she needed to do. Um, and... Uh, Girls got to eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, please remember to uh, rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. And of course, you can find us both on Twitter. We're grateful to our sponsor, Idea Pharma, the industry's leading path-to-market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharma.com. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Be well. Peace out, Cub Scout. <laughs>